Good afternoon. It's Friday the 19th of February 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Um, we have a lot to get through as usual, so uh, we'll get straight on. Um, Andy Burnham was speaking on uh, Radio 4 this morning, uh, and he was talking about vaccine uptake, and he's uh, very upset that uh, apparently only half of the appointments for COVID vaccines are being taken up in Manchester's Mass Vaccination Centre. Uh, he said this, uh, when people are getting the letter saying, do you want to go to the regional centre at Etihad uh, or do you want to wait and go local? Most people are going local. So, uh, well, is this really what's going on, Patrick? Or is this uh, what we might call vaccine hesitancy uh, at work? Uh, and really there just isn't the demand. So apparently lots of vaccine uh, expiring. Uh, of course, what does this do to the government's figures? We don't really know because uh, are the figures about uh, the numbers of vaccines delivered to the t to the vaccination centres, or are they about the uh, number of injections in people's arms? I don't. I don't actually don't know the answer to that question. Um, so, uh, what is going on here? Do you think this is uh, uh, just that the vaccines are being delivered to the wrong place, that people aren't willing to travel to go to the Etihad centre? Or is it that uh, there just isn't the demand? It could be more likely that there isn't the demand. And I might add this, this term vaccine hesitancy is featuring in so many different articles and it's like a major talking point right now with the government. I think a better term instead of hesitancy might be caution, vaccine caution. That's probably more accurate as to what people are feeling and thinking right now. Uh, well, of course, they're trying to uh, demonize anybody that's hesitant uh, with respect to the vaccine, which is why that they, they brand things in that way and use uh, the, that, uh, that word. Um, so anyway, uh, Andy Burnham, uh, the King in the North, of course, uh, is uh, the uh, mayor of uh, Greater Manchester. Um, he uh, is calling for the uh, age range to be immediately extended to, uh, to bring in younger people so that he can get the Etihad full of people to get the numbers up, get right? Get the numbers up. Yeah. Even though, even though young people statistically are not at any risk at all, almost zero, in fact, of ever getting seriously ill from the coronavirus, uh, right? Correct, correct. Now the question then is, of course, what's uh, going to happen with lockdown? Is lockdown going to be released? Apparently, uh, Boris is going to make some kind of statement on this uh, in the not too distant future, but it's pretty unclear about whether. It's going to be released completely or a little bit. Are we going to go back into tears? Well, he said we won't be in tears again, but most people assume that we will be in tears again. Uh, well, to add uh, clarity to this or not, uh, James Cleverly was speaking uh, and he said uh, this. Uh, well, we don't want it to be the last or sorry, we do want it to be the last lockdown. That's pr this present uh, lockdown. That's what we're working towards, is what he was saying. I think he was speaking to Sky News when he was saying this. Uh, the vaccine rollout has been very, very successful, he says. So maybe we're completely wrong about demand. I don't think so, though. Uh, and, uh, we'll, and we'll be having a positive effect. He's not saying it is having a positive effect. He's saying it will be, maybe, perhaps. Uh, and he goes on, he says, uh, but ultimately no one can predict with complete certainty what the virus will do, how it might evolve. But I think we can predict with fairly... Uh, be fairly certain about what the government is going to do uh, and uh, the virus really hasn't doesn't come into the, the picture with respect to what the government is going to do. Well, what you see here Mike is they, they've they've animated the virus once again government officials keep doing this they're saying we have no idea how the virus might evolve 
actually we do have an idea. We have hundreds of years of, of virology, science, and epidemiology. The real scientists, the real microbiologists will tell you exactly how viruses behave. Unfortunately, uh, if they're not singing the right tune in terms of the government's narrative of COVID being the all singing and dancing respiratory virus that seems to do absolute feats of miracle in terms of changing direction, mm -hmm. when it comes out at night, when it, when it hides during the day, etc. And uh, all, these, all these variants, Mike, these deadly variants that keep popping up in various boroughs and regional areas and, and African countries. Uh, and these variants which behave completely differently to any other variant that's ever happened in the history of virology uh, because they become more deadly and stronger as, and more infectious as they, as they continue to go rather than... According to the government. Yes, yes. Uh, even though that flies in the face again of hundreds of years of science well, and virology. But hey... Don't uh, worry about we're that. all about the science, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. But let's uh, let's move on with what he said. We are taking the right action. The government is taking the right action, he says. And we very much hope this will be the last lockdown. So it's all about hope. We've got to hope this will be the last lockdown. Uh, we can't give complete 100% certainty because viruses don't work like that. Oh, there we go again. But governments do. Uh, but we know we are doing the right things. Well, the right things for whom? Um, so let's just see, uh, is there any basis to what he has to say here? Uh, what is the justification for the lockdown? Well, the, the latest uh, weekly national influenza and COVID-19 surveillance report uh, has been released yesterday. Uh, I'm surprised they still put influenza, the word influenza, on this because there is none. Uh, and it might as well just be the COVID-19 surveillance report. Uh, so what is the situation? Well, let's have a quick look. Here's the weekly laboratory confirmed COVID-19 case rates per 100,000 tested under Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 by sex. Now, of course, Pillar 1 is uh, NHS, Pillar 2 is private sector mostly, um, and uh, males and females pretty much were seeing the same trend with respect to the number of cases per 100,000 people. Uh, and well, it's falling through the floor, it seems. We're rapidly heading towards what we saw in July, August, September time. Um, and uh, well, Patrick, correct me if I'm wrong, um, the dip in the middle, by the way, is, of course, Christmas and New Year. But uh, the, correct me if I'm wrong, this is pretty much how every winter respiratory virus behaves. So it comes back to the question that we've been asking since the very beginning, what makes this one special? And I'm struggling to see what makes this one special. It looks an awful lot like the flu, Mike. Um, that's just uh, you know a casual observation there. Yes. It, it does track exactly like the flu. I think that's kind of a coincidence that the flu has basically gone AWOL this, this year. Well, it's, it? it's funny you mention that because let's put this graph on screen because there is the number of acute respiratory infection incidents in care homes by virus type from week 27 in England. Uh, and as you can see, uh, influenza A is red, influenza B is sort of uh, cyan-y color. Uh, except those colors don't appear on the graph other than in the key. So minuscule that they can't even be detected on this graph, right? Exactly. So where has it gone? We've asked this question already. Um, but let's look at the next one I want to show you, which is this. This is a weekly positivity of laboratory-confirmed COVID-19 and the number of individuals tested by type of test under Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. So there's a couple of things going on here. First of all, we're coming out of the normal winter uh, respiratory season and so we're seeing a fall in the number of uh, cases as the government likes to call them uh, but equally we are seeing 
uh, a change in the types of tests that are being run. So we're seeing a reduction in the number of PCR tests and a, an increase in the number of lateral flow tests. And we'll explain why that is significant. Uh, let's start here. Um, here is uh, a tweet from uh, datatosee.com. Um, and the tweet says, so if we trust this from Liverpool University, then for the past 12 months, we've been locking non-infectious people up for the last 12 months who are not infectious, uh, yet people uh, were dismissed who said this, including myself last year. Uh, and he links to uh, an article from Liverpool University. And not only non-infectious, Mike, not cases. They can't, if they're not infectious, they cannot be cases. Right. Therefore, the, the bulk of the data that's been generated by government for its official statistics uh, can really be thrown out. Yes. Because if it's non-infectious, it's not a case. So you can then just obliterate all of these uh, dramatic, big, demonstrative case number announcements that we've seen over the last 12 months. That goes for the UK. That goes for every single other country that's been relying on the PCR test. Yes, but of course, it's not just that, Patrick, because it's also with respect to deaths. Because if, if a COVID death is defined as it is, as someone who died within 28 days of a positive PCR test. Or had symptoms, which could be anything. No, but, that's no, another, but the definition yeah. is it, they died within 28 days of a positive PCR test. That's mm -hmm. the definition that the government uses. Right. Then uh, if PCR is not uh, demonstrating infectious uh, infectiousness, then what did they die of? Keep this in mind as we move forward, because we're going to show you a little bit of video in a second that, that makes this clear. Uh, so anyway, in response to that tweet from datatosee.com, uh, Dr. Claire Craig said it was called D dangerous disinformation, wasn't it? And indeed it was. It was absolutely called that. Um, so here is the Liverpool University report. Um, and the key phrase here that we want to look at is this one. Researchers argue that it is not appropriate to compare rapid antigen test sensitivity to polymerase chain reaction tests because PCR testing uh, is testing for whether a person is or has been infected, whereas lateral flow testing is testing for whether a person is infectious now. So this is Very from- Very interesting, Mike. Absolutely. Uh, so this is from the university. Now, uh, many people missed this, including ourselves, but we, uh, we went back and checked. Uh, a week or so ago, I think it was on the 10th of February, uh, Patrick Valance was on the government live stream. Chief Science Advisor yes. to Boris Johnson. And he said this. If you compare lateral flow tests to PCR, you'll get more positives with PCR because PCR is very, very sensitive. It can pick up very low levels of virus, which may not even be infectious. It may just be low levels there. So PCR will always pick up more than lateral flow. Lateral flow tests are good at picking up people with high viral load who are most infectious. Um, they will pick up if you use them in situations where you otherwise wouldn't pick up anybody. So this is really key, Patrick, because what he has just said is that the entire basis for every government policy that we've seen for the last 12 months, lockdown, vaccination, everything is on the basis of PCR testing. And he is saying that PCR testing does not demonstrate infectious, that you are infectious. That's absolutely clear. So 12 months. 12 months, a year has gone by. And, and these are the top scientists, supposedly, in the country. And they're advising the government. They're advising us on lockdown strategy, on mitigation of the global pandemic. 
and and, they, and their advisors as well. Sage, we have all this you know, cautery of, of scientific experts and the World Health Organization. And it's been a year, and nobody could tell us this mm -hmm. after the year. Ah, but people have been saying this, Mike. Yes, but they for were a very... called uh, distributors of dangerous disinformation, Patrick. Right. So, so after all the palaver, and now they admit it. Um, but uh, nonetheless, uh, the question is, has the lockdown been effective, Patrick? No, well, government would say absolutely. Well, and so lockdown, wouldn't... lockdown supporters, lockdown lovers, lock pro lockdowners. They all say yes. Uh, and so does Imperial College just today. Uh, they have re released the latest information from their so-called REACT study, which is a real-time assessment of community transmission. Um, and, uh, well, the uh, representative from Imperial College, Professor Paul Elliott, said this. These results are encouraging. They show that lockdown measures are effective bringing infections down. So he's talking about the fact that uh, the case numbers are falling through the floor. So he's talking about correlation. And he's trying to claim that that uh, means that the lockdown measure is working. So he's uh, a professor at Imperial College and he's citing a loose correlation as being evidence yes, or proof. Yes, interesting. yes, Very interesting. Yes, now let's bring uh, Professor Andrew Hayward on screen. Um, and he's concerned that uh, lockdown might be released too soon because if lockdown is released too soon, we're going to see tens of thousands of more deaths in that scenario. So cases are falling. The lockdown has worked, according to the uh, Imperial College representative. The nerve tag representative on screen at the moment is saying that we're going to have more tens of thousands of deaths if we release the lockdown too quickly. And the question is, what influence has the lockdown had? On, uh, on this. Um, the, perhaps the easiest way to demonstrate the effect of lockdown is to compare with a country that maybe doesn't have a lockdown. I wonder which country might come to mind for that. How about uh, Sweden? Sweden, Sweden, indeed. So let's have a look at this tweet uh, from Dr. Eli David, who's uh, uh, pushing out a graph from the Financial Times. Uh, and uh, the blue line on the graph is showing uh, what happened in the UK. Uh, the pink line on the graph showing what has happened in Sweden. And I think it's pretty clear there, Patrick, that pretty much the same type of response in both countries in terms of numbers of deaths. Um, and probably for the same reasons, because Sweden uh, also had a problem with care home uh, deaths. Um, and al although they don't have the same scale of death as the UK has had, the peaks and troughs are pretty much in the same place. Um, so bearing in mind that Britain had a lockdown and Sweden didn't have a lockdown, what influence does lockdown have on the number of deaths? Well, according to the geniuses and the, the top scientific minds at, at Imperial College and NerveTag, apparently this is all due to lockdown. So, so says the science. Now, the thing that really concerns me, Mike, about this is you have, these are, these are people who are teaching. They're, you know, they're, they're <laughs> the educators yeah. at Imperial College, and they're, these are supposedly the top minds in science, and they're, they're using loose correlations in order to drive their point home, really to defend their, the policies mm -hmm. that they've been advocating for now for a year, which are experimental policies, totally unprecedented. They got their cues from the Chinese government. They were the first to use this medieval strategy of locking everything down, as supposedly as a mitigation measure. And it, it, to me, it's just quite amazing uh, that they've, they've basically abandoned the scientific method or going any, any deeper than using these ad hoc 
comparisons and citing these loose correlations, of course, have nothing to do with the fact that testing has gone down or that different tests have been used, as, as we've demonstrated, sorry, uh, earlier. There's nothing to do with that. It's literally loose correlations on graphs. That's what it's come down to. Yes. Now, I just want to put this, uh, this tweet back up on screen again just for a second because uh, the tweet actually said, the strict lockdown in the UK was so effective that it stopped the spread of COVID in Sweden as well. Dripping with irony there, but actually I have to say many people in the uh, uh, responses to that on Twitter didn't quite grab, grasp the irony uh, and some were responding, but perhaps they were, uh, um, you know, weren't quite agreeing with the sentiment. But anyway, where does that uh, take us, Patrick, in terms of front pages and headlines and so on? Sure. Well, you know, we, we try to track the headlines. We'll try to do this more and not, not to know what's going on in the world, really, Mike, but really to track the propaganda. So it's important to know your pandemic uh, propaganda. So Thursday, Mike, was a, was a banner day in terms of propaganda. So I thought I'd do a little case study. This is from, from yesterday. Of course, we could have done the same thing this morning and Saturday because really your newsstand, Mike, is nothing more than a point of sale for government propaganda. This is the uh, the Evening Standard, George Osborne's uh, newsletter here, and the headline is interesting. It says, new testing surge to help us reopen. Now, do you see a problem with that headline, Mike? Uh, new testing surge to help us reopen from lockdown, presumably. Well, the problem with that headline is, of course, uh, testing surges are designed to discover new cases, ah. uh, and new cases are designed to justify lockdown. So uh, a surge isn't likely to help us reopen, is it? Not really. So if we if we look at this, what is this? This is double speak, basically. This is sending mixed messages. Of course, we're helping you read between these headlines here. And this is interesting down at the bottom. People would have missed this, Mike. Structural racism is partly to blame for the high uh, BAME COVID deaths. This is uh, uh, BAME, the, uh, the, the new acronym representing blacks, uh, uh, minorities, and ethnic Yes. Was that what it stands for? Yes, yeah, it's, it's black and Asian, uh, black and ethnic minority uh, groups. Okay. So apparently it, uh, COVID is structural racism is causing them to die at higher rates. So this is, uh, again, baking in the social justice uh, in here as well. Pardon me for not being up to date on all of the acronyms. acronyms yeah. uh, pandemic propaganda <laughs> revealed NHS blueprint for tackling COVID vaccine hesitancy. So again, this is coming in on the uh, the iPaper 65P, good value for the money for propaganda. Well, I'm glad to know that uh, the NHS has a blueprint. On Wednesday's program, of course, we showed the, the British Army's blueprint for dealing with vaccine hesitancy, but I'm glad to know the NHS has one as well. They do, and apparently, Mike, it's all about disinformation. And if you look closely here, literally for three or four or five bullet points here, basically scare stories and myths online are costing lives says top NHS medic, who of course is an expert on uh, information like this. Doctors are fighting dual pandemic virus and disinformation and targeting dangerous falsehoods spread on social media. So they're saying, they're complaining, Mike, that there's a problem in uptake of the vaccine. Isn't that what you said earlier in the program? I think so. Um, now, this issue of uh, fighting a dual epidemic of virus and disinformation, this narrative has been running for nearly a year now. It was uh, uh, one of the major uh, journalism uh, professional uh, outlets push, uh, coined the name hashtag infodemic. 
um, and they've been absolutely pushing this uh, idea that uh, this dual epidemic of virus and disinformation is something that has to be fought by the mainstream press. Yeah. Yes. And look, look go back here yes. and look at the last one. Untrue claims are hampering vaccination among some BAME groups. So again, they're bringing the race uh, talking point in and they're saying that uh, disinformation about vaccines is keeping the BAME community yeah. uh, from getting uh, vaccinated. So uh, you can see how the propaganda is being spun here. And here we go to the Guardian, uh, always a leader in, in sophisticated propaganda here. COVID spreading most in children as infections show big fall. So mixed messages within the same headline. Uh, again, Mike, isn't that interesting? So, so that, that headline is, is uh, there to justify the calls for children to be vaccinated. We'll be coming on to that a little bit later in the program. Uh, so they're pushing that campaign, aren't yes. they? Okay, interesting. But telling you, oh, it's good but because overall infections are showing a big fall. We, we told you why they're falling uh, in a, a previous, a few minutes ago, yes. So again, here we go. And the Daily Telegraph here is really doing an incredible job. Uh, Prince Philip there, by the way, he's okay. So we're, we're saved uh, his, his promise of reincarnation. Uh, the world has been spared. For another couple of weeks anyway. For, yes. for now. Parents to test children for COVID twice a week. Schools will only carry out one set of mass checks under new plans for phase return. So they're wanting the, the schools and the parents to do the, do the testing. Mm -hmm. Isn't this interesting? Well, the, the, at the start of the year, uh, it was intended that the schools would be testing children uh, three times a week, I think. Uh, they've reduced it now to one, uh, and they're trying to push it back on the parents to do the testing the rest of the time. Uh, and that's because children are at such a high risk, aren't they? They are. From COVID. I mean, statistically, they're really way, way up there between not point not, not yeah. <laughs> something or rather and not point one. I don't know. It's around that sort of category there. So, And uh, finally here, I mean, well, this is just a bridge too far. This is the Metro here, 4,500 quid to get COVID. They're looking for British volunteers, 18 to 30, who will be deliberately infected with the virus in a world first experiment to find new vaccines. So this is Britain leading the way, Mike, in a world first. Now this used to be unethical. This used to be illegal, apparently. I think it still is in some countries. You can't deliberately infect people with supposedly a deadly virus uh, in order to carry out a clinical trial. Uh, well, this in fact, but it's worse than that, isn't it? Because what have we done? We have uh, destroyed, decimated the UK economy. Many, many people out of work on permanent furlough, unlikely to find a job waiting for them when the furlough scheme ends. So you're put into uh, financial stress uh, and then you make an offer like this. Yeah, a couple, that, that, a couple that. months rent, get COVID. So go back here and let me just say, Mike, they used to do something like this, Mike. Guess what it was called? Animal testing. The animals were deliberately but infected. But you never had to pay for animals. No, no, you just, you could breed them, exactly. So, I mean, this is just ridiculous. Is this what it's come to? Having to, to bung people a few thousand quid to, to take the virus, to develop new vaccines? as if we don't have enough already. There's, a, there's over, uh, there's two or three dozen vaccines in development right now, and they wanna do this? Well, well, it gets better. Now, of course, the, the narrative that's being presented with respect to uh, uh, 
uh, immunity passports is, well, we can't really put, bring immunity passports in, certainly not at the domestic level, because that would be discriminatory against, for example, pregnant women, because women are being advised, pregnant women are being advised not to uh, take the vaccine at the moment. And so, they're not in the, t the clinical tests either. No, They're exactly. not taking pregnant women. For, and there's a reason for that because there's a safety issue, ah, well, there's a risk. Well, the risk, the risk is now to be evaluated because Pfizer and BioNTech have announced that they are gonna commence a global clinical trial to evaluate COVID-19 vaccine in pregnant women. Uh, they're saying that healthy pregnant women in the United States have already received their first doses of the vaccine uh, and uh, as part of this research. Uh, and they are going to be followed up by subjects in Canada, Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Mozambique, South Africa, UK, and Spain. So they're looking for women aged 18 and over, uh, and they are going to be in, uh, given the vaccine during uh, the 24 to 34 week of gestation. Um, and it will be 21 days between the two vaccinations. So again, we're back to the 21 days between the first vaccination and the second vaccination, despite the fact that on the ground, we're not getting uh, two jabs within 21 days uh, because there aren't, there isn't the uptake or something or whatever the excuse is uh, of the day. Uh, they go on to say that uh, they had previously been testing uh, these on pregnant animals and there, there were no new risks revealed from those tests and so they're going on to human trials. Um, but it's not intended to establish if uh, there's any protection against coronaviruses against this coronavirus to babies, to unborn babies or to babies once they're born. So they're not going to check whether to see uh, whether there's any, uh, because I mean, why would they want to do that? They wouldn't want to check to find out whether there were antibodies in, in the newborn baby because uh, that, then they couldn't put another jab in the baby. No, uh, no, we'll just, just vaccinate everybody no matter how healthy they are, no matter how at risk they are. And, and we'll see what happens after a year or two. And, uh, and we'll report back to you, we'll report back to you, said the pharmaceutical companies. We'll let you know if anything goes wrong. You can absolutely trust us on this. So, so this is absolute madness, Mike. Yes, so- Healthy uh, pregnant women. Let's, uh, well, let's just briefly have a look at this because of course the, uh, the MHRA uh, yellow card scheme has started reporting. Now it's supposed to be a weekly report, uh, but interestingly enough, uh, although we showed this last Friday and this was for uh, up until this was, the report was run on the 11th of February. There has been no similar run of a report for today. So the latest weekly report isn't available weekly, apparently. But anyway, let's just uh, remind ourselves of this because last week, last Friday, we were making the point that uh, they had fixed their error from the previous report and they were now reporting the total number of deaths as being 66, uh, resulting in 66 fatalities. But the point we made last week was uh, that uh, if you look at one of the other uh, side effects, one of the other adverse reactions uh, from the Pfizer vaccine, that was spontaneous abortions. Uh, there were five of those on this latest uh, list, uh, and that resulted in no fatalities because uh, an, a, a, an abortion doesn't equal a fatality as far as the vaccine manufacturers are concerned. Sure. Um, and uh, so the total, this is a week old now, the total reactions for the drug uh, were 59,614, resulting in 143 deaths. We haven't seen this week's uh, latest vaccine analysis because it wasn't released just prior to the program. So, uh, but the other news uh, is that Pfizer and BioNTech, uh, once they've finished this trial, well, in fact, it may not be once they've finished, later in the year, they're gonna start 
uh, a further trial on children aged 5 to 11. Uh, and then later in the year, they're going to start uh, test, uh, trials on children under the age of five. Um, so Pfizer and BioNTech very keen uh, to deal with any criticism that uh, they haven't provided the data for safety for various uh, categories of people. Uh, and they're now working very hard to try to produce some data that they can uh, throw out there that, that will imply that uh, there's no safety concerns to be worried about. So let's get the pregnant women, healthy pregnant women, let's get the children, uh, let's get them all lined up uh, for trials for this vaccine. How could you provide long-term safety data in a couple of months, Mike, in a year, in two years? When, do, when, when does phase three of their trial end? Uh, 2025? 2023, January? Certainly, certainly two or three years away from, from now, anyway. So there's no way that they, even according to the parameters of their own trial, that they could uh, be able to evaluate even short-term safety on this. It, the, the claims are just unbelievable. How this was able to sail past uh, government regulators is a whole question onto itself. Uh, they've been given an, special emergency powers uh, and waivers uh, on this. So that, that I think, is, is the core of what is potentially a very corrupt process. And we should remind people once again that they, uh, they, they had previously announced that they would be offering the vaccine to the control group uh, in this phase three trial after six months. Um, so there would be no long-term opportunity to follow the control group, um, the, the, the group of people that received the placebo, uh, and compare the long-term health outcomes for those people with the people that received the vaccine. So it's not really a proper phase three trial anyway. Uh, but look, uh, here's uh, Matt Hancock, uh, his Facebook page. Uh, and well, what I want you to look at is, is this, uh, because he has now got put a little badge, uh, an overlay on his picture on his Facebook page. And the government is uh, absolutely demanding that everybody does this. They have launched their I'll Get My Vaccine campaign. Oh, it's going to be really uh, so, popular. And this is going to be, well, it's going to be driven by uh, the Premier League and the Beano comic uh, and also uh, author, artist and illustrator Charlie uh, McKeezy. Uh, and it's going to be via social media platforms like Facebook and Instagram oh, and see. others. Yes. Uh, and you be, get to put a, a rainbow and I'm getting my jab uh, over your uh, picture. I have a prediction, Mike, that this is going to backfire uh, epically. That's, that's just my prediction. Uh, it, it could well do. Why do you say that? It just could become a running joke. I'm just saying, if, yes. if it's being launched by Matt Hancock, there's a good chance that it might go south. But, you know, the, the point here is, Patrick, that once again, we've got the, the famous people coming out to, to try to validate uh, and try to... Celebrities. Yes. And, yeah, uh, famous persons and so yes. forth. Yes. Yeah. Um, so what's Bill Gates been up to? Billy Goats. Here he is again. Uh, this is from Children's health defense and bill gates is saying actually now uh we need a third shot okay we need a third shot uh this might be needed to combat the various variants mike so the variants apparent according to all these uh new experts uh bill gates obviously is a, is a nobel laureate in science has multiple degrees master's degrees phds he's he's dedicated his whole life to biological science he spent thousands of la uh, hours in labs, uh, slaving away. He's got his doctorates and so forth. Uh, this is this is sarcasm for anybody that's yeah. not not sure. Yes. So of course he's a good person to take advice on uh, 
on, on epidemiology and, and health. So Bill Gates is saying we need, a, we need a new vaccine to roll out in record time. Every time a new variant comes out, we need to PCR test everybody, mm -hmm. and we need to get a new vaccine manufactured, express vaccines for every variant. Okay, this is what Devi Shridhar, uh, the, uh, the science advisor uh, to Nicholas Sturgeon mm. uh, up at Edinburgh University, this is what she was saying. And this is all pursuing, Mike, uh, what, what you might call a zero COVID policy. And uh, I, I think we just got uh, something was tweeted right before we got on air. I'll read it to you. This is from Professor Paul McKeek mm -hmm. from Edinburgh University. He's a colleague of uh, Dr. Uh, Devi Sridhar. And so uh, th this is what he's saying here. Advocates of zero COVID are using the term as a slogan rather than something that has uh, been seriously evaluated against alternatives in the way that has been recommended for the last 30 years, okay? And he goes on as well in, to, to continue on this, saying that there's been plenty of experience with failed disease elimination strategies over the last 50 years. So experts in public health are quite cautious about advocating such strategies like zero COVID, uh, for instance. So lockdowns are unlikely to achieve elimination and the harms they cause should not be disregarded. This is Paul McKeague, Tim Hayward, uh, one of his colleagues at Edinburgh has, has tweeted that out. Mike, that, that's really a common sense statement, I think, from one of the top epidemiologists uh, really in the country. Uh, I think this, this idea of zero COVID is extremely dangerous. What it's representing is that we will never get out of lockdown cycles, of vaccination cycles, uh, because we have never succeeded with zero influenza or zero common cold. Uh, and since many co uh, common colds are caused by coronaviruses, uh, we have no prospect of zero COVID ever. So let me just uh, make this point. I mean, this is a total racket, really, if you think about how much Bill Gates has invested. And he's also subsidizing R&D and development on vaccines for all the major uh, pharmaceutical companies. Mm. So Gates told CBS News, we might need a third shot of the currently available vaccine or a modified vaccine. Or, Does that mean genetically modified? Not sure. He yeah. said a modified vaccine as the virus mutates. So I, maybe you're right on, on the RNA, mRNA vaccine. Mm. But uh, according to RFK, um, he's asking, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. is asking, uh, we haven't focused instead on non-vaccine strategies, including therapeutic drugs. And he makes a, a, a good point here. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. says, Gates continues to move the goalposts, as does mm. the government's that he's advising. Meanwhile, the strategies he and others have promoted are obliterating the global economy, demolishing the middle class, making the rich richer, and censoring vaccine safety advocates like me. Okay, this is kind of, you know, a, a really serious situation, mm. that if anybody comes up and advocates for caution or safety, or to hold corporations and governments to account, they're being brutally censored yes. systematically on social media platforms, and they're being pursued and hounded by the mainstream media and their, quote, fact checkers. That's what's happening right now. Very dangerous state of affairs. Yes. Um, okay, well, uh, today, uh, as we mentioned, I think on Monday's program, Boris Johnson is uh, giving a sort of pre-meeting or holding, hosting a pre-meeting for the G7, which is taking place in June in Cornwall. Um, and uh, so the G7 Twitter account was tweeting this out. This is G7, uh, at G7. Uh, 
And uh, so PM Boris Johnson will encourage G7 leaders tomorrow, that's today, uh, to give more uh, to global vaccinations as he commits the UK to offer surplus vaccines to COVAX to support developing countries and to work with G7 partners uh, to cut vaccine development time by two thirds to 100 days. So, so no testing. No testing whatsoever, because you don't need to test. Once you've tested the principle, Patrick, you don't need to test anymore. Uh, and it, it goes on to say he will also call on leaders to support a treaty on pandemic preparedness through the World Health Organization as we make preventing future health crises a core part of our G7 UK presidency. So, well, so what are we looking If there's a state of emergency and under this guise of a state of emergency, Mike, a pandemic emergency, a global pandemic, they're, they're able to waive all regulatory protocols with regards to the testing uh, the long-term safety testing and clinical testing of all these vaccines. So what's going to happen? Is it going to be like the war on terror where the state of emergency becomes permanent? Mm. And I, th th I think that's already the case. And therefore pharmaceutical companies have carte blanche to basically roll out whatever they want off their assembly line mm. and straight into people's arms uh, because under the guise of a, a war on COVID, mm. right? That's what it's looking like. I'm and afraid it is. It's time for us to speak out uh, much more strongly than we are. Now, uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and uh, please join us there. That would be very much appreciated. Uh, and also share our material from various from the various platforms as well. well now, Patrick, let's uh, come straight on to, uh, well, Texas and the big freeze. Yes, uh, you, you couldn't have avoided this in the news. Um, it's absolutely unprecedented. Uh, the win winter front that has hit the state of Texas right now in mid to late February, nobody's seen anything like this in years. I, I think it's probably the biggest one in 100 years uh, in, in the state of Texas. They have had snowfall in February before. So basically, it's taken the state's power grid by surprise. And there's a, there's a lot of different reasons why this has happened, and people are arguing, uh, we'll show you some of those uh, in a minute, Mike. Uh, but as you can see, uh, it's put people out of, I don't know, 4 million homes uh, without power, businesses without power, and without heat, without natural gas. So literally, I think it's claimed about 47 lives last time we checked mm. uh, in terms of fatalities uh, and counting. So and the state's working overtime to try to get power back, but the problem is there was a surge in demand uh, and they weren't able to cope with that surge in demand because the power grid in that state is, A, it's, it's heavily deregulated. This is a hangover. From, from Enron? From Enron. So that, that's one problem. The other problem is um, they have gradually in, uh, increased their uh, energy take from green sustainable energies, many of which are completely defunct uh, during this cold winter. I'm talking about solar and wind. Uh, weren't the turbines freezing? They were, and we'll show you uh, some images of that in a minute. And the other reason is, as well, uh, is be well, technically, there's there, Texas is geared up towards hot summers, Mike. So uh, the, their grid is geared towards hot summers. Because it's deregulated, they, they could be geared up for cold winters, but they have to prep certain generators and get them ready mm. in the event they might not ever be used. So the power companies either uh, pass on the cost of that winterizing the grid as it's called to pass that on to consumers even though the consumers might not be using that energy mm -hmm. they'd have to pay for it anyway almost like insurance they'd have to pay extra 
or uh, they basically don't do it and save the money and roll the dice and take the chance. And that's what they've done in this case. So they haven't invested in winterizing their grid. And, and, and there's the green energy issue as well has failed. You know, a quarter of their energy supply is basically you know, gone basically. And, and it, the green energy provided the distribution of power as well because even the coal and the gas, natural gas plants, some of them use wind energy uh, in order to provide their operational power mm -hmm. as well. So, I mean, it was a fail on so many levels. Let's take a look at some of the, the crazy scenes from well, Texas here. Yeah, some tweets. So it's so cold in Texas homes that the fish tanks are frozen. There's a little bit of video attached to this and uh, the fish tank does indeed uh, look frozen. We've got icicles uh, coming from a, uh, a fan in a, in a residential corridor outside the, the apartments. Uh, what else have we got here? Uh, with swimming pool beginning to freeze, it's an outdoor pool, fair enough, but, it, but it's... Ice skating outside. Yeah, well, uh, and, uh, and snow on the beach, on the sand. Patrick? This is Galveston, Texas. That's unbelievable right there. That's the Gulf of Mexico. You will not see a scene like that probably in your lifetime, if you're lucky. But um, that, that shows you how far this is stretched. This is just really unprecedented. So let's take a look at uh, what, what we've been uh, seeing in terms of the blame game on this, and uh, let's look at this. This is the Austin American Statesman. What are they saying? Frozen wind turbines hamper Texas power output, state's electrical grid operator says. This was right when the sort of crisis began. I believe this uh, story here is from the 14th or the 15th. And so the, basically the wind turbines froze. And there's a lot of reasons for this. One of the main reasons is it's just solar and wind just don't perform well. Uh, in really cold weather and winters, especially with snow and ice and things like this. There's lots of de-icing that you can do for these big wind turbines. That also costs money. They'll probably have to factor that in, in terms of cost now going forward. But uh, this, this is a huge reckoning here. Let's just look at the wind power though. This is what it's looked like from 2015 to 2021. Look at that, down from 10% all the way up to 25%, a quarter of the state's energy. And this is one of the biggest states in the United States, second only to California in terms of population size. So 25% of that grid is a lot of energy dependence on quote renewables. Uh, intermittent, and, intermittent power sources. And of course, yes. you know, when you've got this type of cold weather, quite often you end up with days at a time, weeks at a time of settled, quiet, no wind, cold. And so not only do the turbines freeze, but they, there's actually nothing there's no wind to drive them in any case. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and you have, like we saw in Germany last week, solar panels all covered in snow. So basically, the coal industry bailed out Germany. Mm. Germany's the greenest country in the world right now in terms of sustainable energy. Turns out it's not very sustainable, Mike, mm. at least not in the winter. But uh, let's look at what else they have to say here uh, in terms of this conversation. Now, <laughs> Elon Musk <laughs> will always find a way to make his way into the headlines here. So he's looking, he's confused. He's all, what does this mean for Tesla? He's just moved the company to Texas. You can see some de-icing going on here. That's actually from Scandinavia from a few years ago, but we just put that in uh, to demonstrate here. But look at this. Texas Freeze raises electricity to $900 to charge a Tesla car. Now, you're asking, how is this possible? Well, look at this. Uh, this is one power company, Gritty even told 29,000 of its customers now fully exposed to real-time swings 
We're talking about a fully deregulated Enron style mm. energy market here, wholesale power markets to switch. They're telling their customers switch to another provider because spot electricity prices pushed as high as $9,000 uh, per megawatt hour. So what does that mean? That means to, to, to charge a Tesla right now, according to these prices would cost $900. So it was 9,000 per megawatt hour there at the wholesale level. $900 to charge a Tesla car. Right, this is really important. One of the things that people miss uh, when they're talking about smart meters in domestic smart meters for electricity supply, it, they're focused on the, the potential health implications of those. But actually, aside from that, as, as we head towards this, this spot electricity price idea, uh, one of the reasons that the energy companies are very, very keen to see smart meters in people's homes is because they can uh, identify exactly what time in the day you're using your power and they mm -hmm. can they can price that appropriately so as the as the spot price changes during the day they look at your electricity usage during the day and if your electricity usage has gone up at a time when the spot price has gone up your bill will change to reflect that yeah. this is one of the aspects of this of smart meters that people uh, don't quite grasp but it's is for one, one of the key drivers of it's it. It's for micromanaging profitability, basically. Yes. I think the only solution here, Mike, would be uh, some kind of the state would have to subsidize at least the winterization costs mm. uh, for this. So, I mean, it can't be, I think deregulation's gone completely overboard uh, in this case. So, it's, I think it's failed. So, that's, that's one of the solutions. The other would be a, the, the federal. Uh, bailout system. They, the federal government could subsidize that. And they're saying, why don't they pull power from other states, neighboring states? Because uh, although Texas is not on the national grid, it still is connected to mm. those other states. Well, why? Well, because the other states got hit with the same snowstorm, so they don't have any available power for Texas. So again, it's uh, they're, they're stuck in that same situation here. This is what Dan Crenshaw is saying, Texas congressman here, and this is what he has to say, Mike, which reflects what you just said. This is what happens when you force the grid to rely in part on wind as a power source. When weather conditions get bad, as they did this week, intermittent renewable energy like wind isn't there when you need it. So would you agree with that statement? 100%. So I think Dan Crenshaw, of course, is speaking pretty much common sense there. Uh, a little more uh, vociferous comment here by Sid Miller. Texas Ag Commissioner, he says, we should never build another wind turbine in Texas. The experiment failed big time, says Sid Miller. He's got the 10-gallon hat there. Okay. So he looks like Texas's ag minister there. So obviously, the, the governor has made a similar statement, Mike Greg Abbott, basically saying, you know, our dependence on green energy is one of the things that got us in this mess. Mm. So it's not the only thing, obviously, but if you consider you know, they're using green for the distribution of power or to look after the operations of, you know, natural gas plants and coal. I mean, this is just a recipe for disaster. So, yes. and, and the academics, what's funny, Mike, is they were just boasting how uh, that the summers, or the, sorry, the winters are going to get hot. If you look back at the headlines, all the climate activists were saying, February is gonna be like summer now in Texas. Just last year, they ran articles like that in USA Today. So the academics, climate activists, been pushing this line of global warming constantly, and this is affecting policy. Mm. And this is what you get, mm. a perfect storm in Texas. So uh, again, this has been a bad week for the global warming uh, climate crowd. 
But look at this. Who's weighing in? There he is again, Billy Goats. And that's uh, Greg Abbott there next to him. They've got a little argument going on here. Gates had to weigh in, though. Gates slams Texas Governor Greg Abbott for blaming frozen wind turbines for Texas blackouts after Governor used crisis to attack the Green New Deal, despite wind making up just 13% of outages. So that's a misleading headline right there, of course, by the Daily Mail. So the Daily Mail is kind of peddling the woke uh, Green New Deal Great Reset narrative here. And that's what Bill Gates is doing, Mike, mm. as well. He's really upset. And let me tell you, they have mobilized the fact checkers on this. As soon as this story broke, uh, you, Biden partisans and all sorts of trolls appeared like magic on Twitter feeds, basically saying, no, 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 it's not because of the windmills. No, 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 green energy hasn't failed. It's not because of the renewables. It's other for other reasons. And they really swarmed on social media. And let's look at this. I think Silicon Valley is very much involved in this. I just did a search here, Mike, on frozen windmills in Texas. And this is what comes up. And you can do this at home as well if you're watching. So look at this. Fact check. Is green energy to blame for the power outages? Of course, they're saying no. Bloomberg, uh, blame Texas exceptionalism, not green energy from wind farms. And even Reason, supposed to be libertarian, are saying renewable energy is not the chief cause of the Texas power outages here. So, I mean, this is just a, a small sample, Mike, of this. So, they're really, they're, so now you have a situation where you have a major event, a major crisis. You go to the Internet looking for some information, and Google's already curated it. For you on their algorithm mm. like this basically don't blame green energy when in fact all of the proof all of the uh, evidence does uh, circle back to the renewable grid we showed you the, uh, the the increase in Texas's share of renewable energy it's very unstable it's intermittent and it's highly prone to seasonal outages and problems so this is fact so this has become a political issue this is one of the Biden administration's big big platform issues, which is the Green New Deal. And what happened in Texas this week is a devastating blow uh, to Joe Biden and the Green New Deal because the residents of Texas will never forget it. Mm. And people know and people can use common sense. You can have a debate. We've told you all the reasons why the grid failed, but you cannot discount the failure of renewables mm. in this. They just did not, they were not up to the task. And uh, Mind you, while this is going on, record-breaking winters in Europe, in the UK, in the United States, and other parts of the world, and guess who is missing in action? Nowhere to be found. No tweets, nothing. So the, the global warming crowd just disappear as we're having a record-breaking winter, missing in action. Where is Greta? I don't know. No one's seen her. She'll appear as soon as things warm up a bit, and then she'll be out again striking and wait for the, the heat wave in the summer, and then it's gonna be people are dying, our house is on fire. But guess what, Greta? Our house is freezing right now. Help us. What can we do to bring the temperature up? <laughs> help us, Greta, we need help. Okay, let's move on then. Uh, Facebook, uh, what is going on with Facebook, Patrick? Because there's a bit of an argument in Australia. This is a big story right now, and look, take a look at this. Yes, it's Australia. Basically, What's happened? Facebook has banned all news uh, to appear on their site in Australia 
This is mainstream news we're talking about. And alternative as well. Okay. I, mean, I have statements from alternative media outlets. We didn't have time because they just came in before the broadcast, Mike. But basically, if you're so, if you're in Australia, you can't see any news, not not alternative, not mainstream. Okay, and you can't see anything internationally. So you can't. You're blacked out from Australian news and international news uh, as well. No, I can't see at, 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 in the UK. We can't see anything in terms of Australian news on Facebook. Mm. That's blocked as well. So international can only see the international, can't see the Australian. Australians can't see the Australian nor the international wow. uh, as well. So let's just take a look at the headline here, Facebook's Australian news ban. What is social media giant up to here and how will it affect you? So basically the, the, the company has pulled rank. Uh, the Australian government has a new media code which they're planning to pass, which basically stipulates that, uh, that they want Facebook to pay uh, mainstream media organizations like News Corporation, like The Guardian, like all of these other mainstream organizations. They want to pay in order to uh, have their news visible on the Facebook platform. Mm -hmm. So the MSM saying, pay us, pay us. Our content is really valuable, and so we, we want you to pay us. Pay us for our propaganda, basically. And Facebook is saying, whoa, hold on for a minute. Uh, and so it hasn't even passed yet. And Facebook said they went and they, they shut it down immediately. So they're saying, we're going to show you what it looks like now, uh, what's going to happen if, if, if we don't uh, accept your terms. This is what it's going to look like. They mm. pulled the switch, Mike. They pulled the death switch on, on this. Unbelievable. Uh, well, this Guardian article then had a little bit of video. It did. Here, listen closely to the uh, Australian minister, and you can see how this story is beginning to shape up. It's, it's become Australia versus big tech. But uh, listen to this. In respect to Facebook's actions today, Facebook was wrong. Facebook's actions were unnecessary. They were heavy-handed, and they will damage its reputation here in Australia. Their decision to block Australians' access to government sites, be they about support through the pandemic, mental health, emergency services, the Bureau of Meteorology, were completely unrelated to the media code, which is yet to pass through the Senate. But what today's events do confirm for all Australians is the immense market power of these media digital giants. It was, it was a bit of a known goal in, in that sense in Facebook because they took down charities, uh, health departments, government websites, all got taken down. Some of those have been put up in the last couple of days because they've been scrambling behind the scenes, but from a public relations point of view, not good. Um, but what we're seeing is uh, multiple levels of, of fight within uh, the uh, establishment. So we've got the government in the UK and Australia, governments all around the world, uh, pushing this narrative, begun by the UK government, pushing this narrative that uh, Facebook and other social media platforms have to start uh, removing certain types of content. So they're, they're going to be regulated in some form. So they've got that threat of regulation on one hand. Uh, and of course, that puts a a, a pressure on their business because they've got to hire people to manage the, the regulation and so on. So that's one part of it. We've got the mainstream media that although they're getting massive bungs from the government at the moment to push, push out so much material on the government's behalf, they want more. Uh, so they are demanding a share of the ad revenue from platforms like Facebook. Um, 
and we've got uh, Facebook themselves um, who want simply to keep um, the ad revenue for themselves. The same goes for Twitter, the same goes for Google and the rest. Now we've seen uh, Google uh, producing, uh, setting up uh, an expansion of Google News uh, to try to... Uh, it's called showcase, News Showcase, yes. they're calling it. Uh, Apple has done the same with their Apple News Plus. There are other platforms developing around the world which are designed to do some kind of rev revenue share thing. It's all efforts to try to make sure that the mainstream media is properly funded. Um, mm -hmm. But at the core of this is this fight over who makes the decisions about what material goes on to social media platforms, how r this rigorous this regulation regime is going to be, and who funds the mainstream media. And mm -hmm. these uh, issues are all uh, con combined and connected. Uh, in the UK, this discussion is happening over the online harms legislation. Also, if you think back to the Karen Cross review about how we were going to fund the mainstream press, it's it's extremely uh, important issue and uh, and so one that we should be watching very, very carefully. And, and meanwhile, the alternative media is being trampled underfoot, Mike, uh, on this. I mean, I spoke to New Dawn magazine. They're based in Australia. Uh, long-standing publication there. I think they've been going for just around 30 years. And they said they don't actually post news on their, their group, 55,000 mm -hmm. likes and, and subscribers uh, in total. No, 35,000, I think, 35,000 likes and subscribers. So they said they, don't, they only post notifications about new issues. They pay for advertising on Facebook in order to reach more people, and they've just been shut down. Mm. So basically they're saying that's a waste of all of our advertising money that we've mm. invested in. Mm. So the, no, no, no consideration whatsoever for anything below the corporate media level on this. So they really shut, we're not visible, I don't think you're visible as well uh, in Australia as well. So I mean, it, it's, it's, it's orchestrated by corporates, Mike, but uh, everything else is getting crushed underneath it. But let's look at the other side of, of the argument here. So the, in terms of woke points, uh, not looking good, Mike, not looking good here in terms of PR. But the, the argument that Facebook is making is they send 5.1 billion clicks to mainstream media. So mainstream media are making much more out of advertising revenue from referrals from Facebook uh, than the other way around. So it's only 4% of Facebook's total traffic. So they're, they're not bothered by it at the moment. So they're really taking a strong position on that mm -hmm. right now. So again, they're saying you need us more than we need you. I think from a mathematical point of view, Facebook's probably correct. Um, they do send tons of, of traffic that tr generates revenue from mainstream media, more than they'll get. But the mainstream media want both. They want the clicks. Oh, they want it all. Plus they want extra money from, from Facebook. They want to be paid for their bottom line. Yes. Uh, okay, uh, let's move on to uh, money then. And uh, well, the headline is global debt soars to 356% of global GDP. Uh, so this is a new report from the Institute for International Finance. Uh, and uh, they're saying that uh, global debt has increased to $281 trillion. Uh, and uh, so public, private and public sector debt rising by $24 trillion in 61 countries that the uh, that this uh, uh, think tank Institute for International Finance follows. Um, they're saying that uh, non-financial private sector debt, that's you and me, Patrick, uh, is up, it now makes up 165% of the entire world's economic output. Uh, and uh, government debt now accounts for 105% of global GDP, and that's up from 88% in 2019. So uh, this is not looking terribly good. And really lockdown and, and 
the, the quote pandemic has probably driven this it's driven that. of course it has yes it's driven it because uh, family incomes aren't there and because government income isn't there and uh, government's spending money on uh, spurious things driving as well, debt right driving up. debt right up um, okay let's uh, let's move on to this then um, no one could buy or sell without the mark uh, this is uh, what we're talking about uh, the government has today published uh, draft rules uh, for the road uh, actually this was a couple of days ago they did this uh, for the of the road for the governing of future use of digital identities um, so this is all about digital identity uh, let's have a look and see what they're saying uh, data management policy uh, they're going to provide one of those for, for us all which explains how they that's us you and me uh, can create obtain disclose protect and delete data okay so that should make you feel okay that's where oh, yeah. their protection is going to be in place over this um, this is all about by the way uh, being able to identify yourself without the need for paper documents because everything's going digital now yeah uh, okay they're going to follow industry standards and best practice for information security and encryption so that should make us feel good as well uh, they're going to tell us uh, if any changes for example an update to our addresses have been made to our digital identities oh a new That's problem very nice of them to do that a for problem us. we don't have with paper uh, documents do we indeed ah. uh, and uh, well let's go on they say where appropriate having a detailed account recovery process and notifying users of organ if organizations suspect someone has fraudulently accessed their account or used their digital identity so you're going to be told that stuff but only where it's appropriate and mm -hmm. perhaps you could tell me patrick where would that not be appropriate? Well, could it be when, when government or a, a deep state agency is accessing uh, your data or messing with your, quote, account? Well, it may well be. Interesting. Uh, and then finally, following guidance on how to choose secure authenticators for their service. So you and I will have to use a secure authenticator. Mm -hmm. uh, well, who are the uh, secure authenticators that we have at the moment? Uh, I think it's probably Google and Facebook and these types of organizations that are so more corporate. providing authentication services around the internet. At oh, the so moment, they'll have a monopoly, wouldn't they, on that? So another another corporate power grab deeper into your life right here. This is what it looks like. Um, so apparently economists have estimated that the cost of manual offline identity proofing is as high as £3.3 billion pounds a year. Uh, and so this is going to make our lives easier it's also going to give a boost to the country's 149 billion pound digital economy apparently by creating new opportunities for innovation enabling smoother cheaper and more secure online transactions and saving businesses time and money um, so here is uh, matt warman the digital infrastructure minister and he said establishing trust online is absolutely essential if we are to unleash the future potential of our digital economy uh, I couldn't have said the, it better. The future potential for control and social engineering and all sorts of things like we're seeing right now in terms of limiting uh, movement, civil liberties, travel. How hard would it be, Mike, to uh, add uh, vaccine status to this digital identity? I suppose not very hard. Uh, not very hard. Uh, it wouldn't be very hard to link your, your, social, cre sorry, your social, your credit score. Uh, I mean, your credit score, yes. A social credit score. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. exactly. And I'm sure Microsoft isn't isn't interested in this market either, are they? No. ID no. 2020. <clears throat> exactly. Um, so anyway, there is actually a survey and they're asking for people's opinions on this. Uh, if you want to uh, have a look at this, the survey is your opportunity to provide feedback on the UK's digital identity and, uh, and att attributes trust framework. 
the survey begins with some uh, overview questions and an opportunity for you to provide general written feedback. Uh, the survey will expire at 12 p.m. on the 11th of March and partial responses will be automatically submitted at that time. So anyway, you've got until the 12th. Because you wouldn't want to give this a six month process to get feedback, wouldn't you, Mike? You just have to quietly announce it, make the deadline really short in order to limit the amount of feedback that you get, right? Well, indeed. So uh, 12 p.m. the 11th of March, that's when you've got to have it by. There's the URL on screen. Uh, you can freeze the screen later on and, uh, and head over to that if you would all, like to. All of these technocratic measures are either for convenience or for safety. So well, that's what, how they're sold to us anyway. Yeah, because, yes. So it's, it's one or the other. Uh, but it gets even better because, uh, well, the UK is going to uh, innovate at a deep state level with robotics, AI, uh, well, and COVID-related stuff as well. So uh, we're creating a, an equivalent to DARPA. Uh, it's finally being done. Deep state innovation. Yes, deep state innovation. It's going to be called the Advanced Research and Invention Agency, ARIA. Uh, and it's going to be tasked with funding high-risk research that offers a chance of high rewards, uh, supporting groundbreaking discoveries that could transform people's lives for the better. And the examples they use uh, are the Internet, GPS. Um, but they're saying that uh, more recently, ARPA's successor, DARPA, uh, was a vital pre-pandemic funder of mRNA vaccines and antibody therapies, uh, leading to critical COVID therapies. Um, and so that's, uh, that's good stuff. Yeah, and no... No uh, consideration of whether those are safe or not. We'll find out in a couple of years. Well, I think that's what the high-risk aspect of this is about. But anyway, we should be uh, pleased that as we're rolling out digital identities in one hand, we're creating new digital platforms uh, on the other uh, to make sure we can use those effectively. Yeah, and so we can, things will be more convenient. You can move quicker and buy sandwiches and coffees and things like that as well uh, while you're traveling, flying, taking trains and so forth. Should be great. Uh, okay, well, look, we'll finish uh, on Mars because, of course, fantastic news, and that is that NASA's latest rover has apparently landed successfully uh, in the Jezero crater on Mars. That's right. The Perseverance, uh, it's called, Mike. So this is uh, NASA's latest uh, mission. A lot of fanfare. They, they stream this out live on Twitter. No, these guys aren't there on Mars. These, so NASA's encouraging people to take selfies. Uh, so this is this is a lot about social media. So they're really, as we'll show you in a minute, NASA has become very woke and very so social media savvy here. So let's just take a look at. Uh, so yeah, these are basically virtual selfies. That's what they were promoting all yesterday uh, with with NASA. So trying to get the youth involved, and of course, very inclusive as well. Uh, you'll see this is what they were kind of showing in terms of the coverage all day yesterday. As you can see, they've really tried to overhaul the image as a, uh, a woke uh, organization, Mike, diverse, inclusive, lots of equity, and also masks. Very important, everyone was, most people were masked. Some people in, uh, in some of the broadcast studios weren't here, but uh, basically everybody's following COVID rules hmm. there at uh, Mission Control uh, with, with NASA there. So, so again, you, you'd be hard pressed to find a, a male <laughs> a male a member of NASA on camera is seemed to be completely dominated by women. So this is what the organization wants to to project. Mm -hmm. They are uh, you know welcoming um, women and minorities and things like this. So NASA's gone completely woke. And so if you look and just do a cursory search, this is all you're going to find on their website here, fulfilling the dream. NASA continues to fulfill the dream of diversity and inclusion in all of its activities. Here. And in further, NASA's unity campaign 
is what they're calling it, uh, takes on new meaning during the pandemic. Since social justice protests began, talking about George Floyd, in earnest back in May, diversity dialogues have been focused on specific race challenges. What does this have to do with space exploration, Mike? It's difficult to uh, close that circle, but yet this is what they seem to be really concerned about this. And of course here, this is from NASA's own website, innovation and diversity drive exploration. So it's not technology, uh, it's not- It's not science. It's not science, it's, it's diversity and inclusion and equity. In case we do meet aliens up there, Mike, we want to show them that uh, we are all for inclusion, overcoming hurdles to achieve personal and organizational excellence through diversity and inclusion in NASA's workforce. So this is great. Uh, things are looking really, really good and inclusive at NASA here. And this is, this. we'll show you the moment they celebrated. I just want people to watch this. This is Mission Control. When the uh, Perseverance landed and they're celebrating, but it sounds like someone's screaming under a pillow, basically, because they're all wearing their mask. It's the most bizarre thing, but go ahead and just look at the... from Perseverance on the surface of Mars. Now it comes from the engineering. And so, yeah, kind of strange, isn't yes. it? But anyway, do you see that image there? That was the black and white image. That was the initial image. That's, uh, that's this one. That's right. Let's take a closer look at this here. Of course, because we're looking for things that, you know, maybe NASA's not looking for. So, and a lot of people are, are very skeptical about what's going on in the surface of Mars. And if you look really closely here, is there life on Mars? Isn't that the big question? It is. That's that, why they're there. They're in that lake to find evidence of life on Mars. That's right. They're in that dry crater. Microbial life even. Microbial. They're looking for water, looking for any signs of life. And if you look closely, a lot of people miss this, but we didn't, Mike, because we're looking for these sort of things. Look at this point there. Just take a good look. It doesn't look very clear, but you can see there's just a speck there, Mike, uh -huh. there. And we said, that looks familiar. I've seen that before. Where have we seen that? Is there life on Mars? Well, take a look at that. Can we do a 4K blow up? Go for it. On that. What is that? It's, ah, there he is. That's Covey. So what have we found here? Well, this is the COVID-21. This is the Mars variant, Mike. And what's Matt Hancock and his team at SAGE saying? Basically, Mars is going to be on lockdown right now because of this. So Mars is contaminated with COVID. The Perseverance brought the virus to Mars. Or was COVID on Mars before? This is the question. These are questions that need answered. Is the question. So these are the, uh, the great mysteries of the universe. Yes. So we, we'll go where no man has gone before or no... No female uh, and male have gone before. No person has gone Indeed. before. Indeed. Indeed. Okay, well, we shall leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us today, Patrick. Uh, and thank you for joining us. We will be back at 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. Uh, have a great weekend and uh, hope to see you then. Bye-bye.